Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr, and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Today, we're talking about treating Cushing's disease, and joining me on the podcast is Dr. Maria Flesheriu, Professor of Medicine and Neurological Surgery and Director of the Pituitary Center at Oregon Health and Science University. She is also President of the Pituitary Society. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Flesheriu. Thank you for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to talk to Endocrine Society. Thank you. So why don't we start at the beginning. What is Cushing's disease, and how prevalent is this condition? We don't know how prevalent it is, but I can tell you what Cushing's disease is and what effort we're making in making the right diagnosis. So Cushing's disease in particular, it's caused by a pituitary tumor that's secreting ACTH. Because the ACTH is high, this will tell the adrenals to work more, and then the adrenals will secrete so much cortisol that would be too much for the body, and because the tumor still exist, will not shut down to the high cortisol that's in the body. In all of us, if you or me are stressed and secrete more cortisol, this ACTH will be suppressed. However, if we have a tumor, this will continue to secrete ACTH and will have a permanent state of hypercortisolemia. The issue with the high cortisol is we all need cortisol. If it's too low, we'll be in trouble. If it's too much, we're also in trouble. This cortisol has effects on the body regulating immunity, metabolism, glucose, psychology. So it's very important to have the right number. So if the tumor is secreting too much ACTH and then we have too much cortisol, it would be good to make the diagnosis in time. So when you ask me about prevalence, a lot of the pituitary tumors, probably 10% of the pituitary tumors that are symptomatic, will stain at least for ACTH. Some of these will actually be part of the Cushing's disease syndrome. So it's very important not to miss the diagnosis and make the right diagnosis. And I'm sure we're going to talk about how challenging this is. Yes, indeed we are. First, I'd like to talk about what are some of the symptoms of Cushing's syndrome. And then we'll just touch on how it is diagnosed. We used to think that a patient has Cushing's when they have the florid Cushing's. So this was Harvey Cushing's more than 100 years ago, making the diagnosis of Cushing's in Mini-G, a patient that was severely obese, mostly with central obesity, very, very large stria, supraclavicular fat, and also plethora in the face and Mm. round face. And then, of course, there are some other symptoms. Now, we're making the diagnosis a little bit earlier, not where I would want to, but still earlier, So there are several specific signs that we're looking for a patient with Cushing's. So the more specific signs are if the patient has round face and plethora, that's important, the supraclavicular fat, if they have easy bruising, that's also more specific, and of course, if they have the large stria that are more than one centimeter and violaceous in the abdominal area where most of the fat is deposited when you have Cushing's. Patients have very thin limbs, but almost all the fat is in the belly. So because of this, we are looking at all the parameters. There are some patients that don't read the book. So they have some of the symptoms Mm. and features, but not all of them. So it would be very important for all the clinicians to think about also in patients that have uncontrolled hypertension. 
If the patients have severe diabetes that doesn't make sense and they are on treatment and still they're uncontrolled, a secondary cause. So if that patient has or doesn't have a pituitary tumor, we should think about Cushing's creating some of these uh, problems. And the Endocrine Society guidelines are recommended screening for these patients with several things like uncontrolled diabetes, uncontrolled hypertension, vertebral fracture, and severe osteoporosis, again, with no clear cause we should probably think more about, about Cushing's as a cause for that. And as a clinician who sees the patients, when you're going to make a diagnosis of Cushing's, what are you looking for specifically? So the diagnosis of Cushing's, we're talking until now about screening and suspicion. So that should be easy. Mm-hmm. We change the paradigm, how we think about this. For diagnosis, unfortunately, we have no easy diagnosis, especially for early Cushing's. So the Endocrine Society guidelines recommend, when we all recommend in all our talks, to do either urinary-free cortisol for diagnosis, mm-hmm. salivary cortisol, or overnight dexamethasone test. These are all screening tests, and all these tests have both false positive and false negatives. Ah. So the caveats of these tests are sometimes more important than the results itself. Because the cutoffs, for example, for overnight dexamethasone test, it's 1.8 for screening. And the endocrine society guidelines specify clearly that if it's more than 1.8 after the dexamethasone suppression test, it's a suspicion of Cushing's. That's great. We have a cutoff. We are all using this. However, if the patient is on estrogen, that cutoff is not Mm -hmm. accurate because the cortisol is binding to CBG, so it would be inaccurate. If the patient is, for example, on antiepileptic medication, uh, the dexamethasone will be metabolized sooner, so that cortisol is not good either. For urinary-free cortisol, we also have problems with collections, as you know. In patients with kidney failure, we can do it. For salivary cortisol, should be the easiest one to do. Before the patients go to bed, they do several nights in a row. Should be low. There are some essays problems and also false positives. The stress you are... If you work nights, then it's going to be high, so we can't trust that. So it's usually a combination of all these tests. At least two have to be positive before we move to confirmatory testing. But uh, it's, it's a very complicated, and it's probably the most complicated diagnosis. And it's hmm. a quote that I love the most that says, if you think that you never missed a diagnosis of Cushing's, you should send the patient to somebody else because wow. that's really a problem for, for Cushing's and we all have to be aware about the pitfalls of diagnosis. So it sounds like the diagnosis can be complicated. What about the challenges in treating? So once diagnosis is made and it's time for treatment, how is that? So that's even more interesting because once we make the diagnosis of Cushing's, we have to find out where it's coming from. Because all the tests that I told you are just to screen for Cushing's. Then we have to do confirmatory testing in some cases. And then we have to find out where Cushing's is coming from. Because you have to make sure that the patients are not taking exogenous steroids. Hmm. We have to make sure that this is coming from the pituitary or the adrenal because the treatment will be completely different. So that is complicated in itself. But once we find out where this is coming from, and I will focus now on Cushing's disease. So if it's caused by a pituitary tumor, and that's what we call Cushing's disease, everything else is Cushing's syndrome, the first line of treatment is surgery. Transphenoidal surgery done by the 
a good surgeon. So I usually tell the patients, finding a good surgeon is as important as for us was finding to have you to have Cushing's. However, even in the hands of the best surgeons, the remission rate for Cushing's are between 70 and 90%. And furthermore, the more we're studying this, in up to 30% of patients, several years, even 20 years later, the disease can come back. So now we have a large population of patients that all failed the first surgery or the disease is coming back that were struggling to define what would be the best treatment for these patients. So how has research and advances in research been evolving treatment decisions? The treatment is evolving, especially on the medical therapy area. There have been some progress on surgery. Uh, as I mentioned, this is first line, but the re- sometimes we do repeat surgery if it didn't work the first time yeah. or the disease recurred. We're doing in selected cases also bilateral adrenalectomy, and we have a little bit more data about that. Uh, the radiations have new techniques, hmm. but what's the most important uh, field that evolved significantly over the last several years are the medications that we're using for Cushing's. Until 2012, we had no medications approved by the FDA for Cushing's. Mm. So everything that we have used was off-label. Since 2012, we have now two medications approved in U.S. In the world, there are a little bit more. And then we also have several clinical trials on other type of drugs. So the medical treatment for Cushing's is evolving significantly. And also what's evolving significantly are how much we know about complications of Cushing's. Because just to treat the Cushing's, we have three groups of drugs. We have drugs that work at the pituitary level. We have drugs that work at the adrenal level, inhibiting the cortisol Mm -hmm. or blocking the glucocorticoid receptor. But just treating the Cushing's sometimes is not enough. So patients with Cushing's, not just Cushing's disease, any type of Cushing's have a lot of complications. We learn more about hypercoagulability. These patients have an increased odds ratio of developing a hypercoagulable event of 18 times more than normal population. So we are changing how we're uh, doing anticoagulation, and it's less than the hip fracture, but still it's a very high uh, rate compared with the normal population. So overall, we are seeing a lot of progress, especially in the medical treatment area, but also how we think about treating the patient as a whole. Mm-hmm. individualized treatment in itself for each patient. I want to talk about individualized treatment a little bit. I've been reading the Endocrine Society's guideline on treating Cushing's, and it appears that treatment options do vary depending on the individual. So what are the key factors to evaluate when determining a treatment approach? So that's probably the $1 million question. Oh, okay. That's very, very variable uh, from center to center, and then depends clearly on the patient's preference. So I always, after the first surgery, if the disease is recurring or not in remission, I always ask the patient after we present all the options what they would prefer. For example, a patient that's not planning pregnancy and they still have some tumor left, my preference would be for that patient to have a repeat surgery. However, that patient might say, I don't want to have another surgery. So then the second option would be medical treatment. If it's still some tumor there, I would think of a drug that works at the pituitary level. So we have 
an option of an approved drug like pesirotide or sub-Q or once a month. That's Mm -hmm. an advance. And we have recent data published this month about long treatment for patients that responded initially with pesirotide LAR, that they will continue to respond for up to two years, not in all cases. However, these patients will develop diabetes in a high percentage of cases. Mm -hmm. So could be diabetes up to uh, 50% of patients, hyperglycemia even more. So clearly talking about individual treatment, the patient that has diabetes to begin with might not be the perfect patient for this particular drug. So then we have to balance and we can use or something of label or we can use a glucocorticoid receptor blocker like mifepristone, for example. If there are no contraindication, if the patient has, um, for example, vaginal bleeding Mm -hmm. or desiring pregnancy, that patient will not be a good candidate for mifepristone. If it's a patient, uh, for example, that has some abnormal liver function, that would not be a candidate for ketoconazole. That's the drug that we use the most off-label. So there are several things that we are looking at. We are looking first of patient preference. We are looking at the size of the tumor, how we are trying to. We're looking at the side effects profile of each of the drug. We are looking at what are we trying to improve, tumor, diabetes, hypertension, We're looking at how high is the urinary free cortisol because we know that most of the drugs won't work if the urinary free cortisol is super high. So that would be a patient that I will send to bilateral antelectomy. The same thing if a patient desires pregnancy, I'm not going to do another surgery because then the patient has a higher risk of hypopituitarism. So that would be a patient that I would recommend bilateral antelectomy changing one tumor with the other hmm. uh, because after bilateral adelectomy, patients have high risk of developing what we used to call Nelson syndrome. So the pituitary tumor can grow back. So there are a lot of things we have to keep in mind. And I think we have to also be aware of the cost. The cost of, of all these drugs are, are going up and hmm. we have to think of, uh, yes, research is very important, uh, but we have to think about the cost for the society also. So I wanted to ask about what should be done for the patient whose Cushing syndrome is caused by their medication. I think that's the most complicated questions of all the one you asked oh, today. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so Cushing syndrome that's caused by the exogenous steroids yeah. is very hard to treat for two reasons. One, the doctors that started the high-dose steroids had something in mind to treat. So that's very hard to stop. Right now, they have several protocols, and I'm happy that now uh, large centers, including ours, are not even using it after transplant. So they found different protocols that are avoiding the high-dose steroids. Mm -hmm. Uh, For rheumatologic disorders, they have now, again, some other medications that they can use. So they use short-term high-dose steroids, but it's still a very large population that's on high-dose steroids that's causing Cushing syndrome. For these patients... My main rule is to tell them, because sometimes they are so concerned about Cushing's that they stop the drug. If they stop the high-dose steroids Mm -hmm. and they were taking it for a while, the risk of adrenal insufficiency is very, very high. Almost everyone will have their ACTH suppressed. So that's when they can get in trouble. So we work with all these patients and tell them, once you are done with the high-dose steroids, we need to have you on hydrocortisone and they're not lowering the doses, and we keep testing for adrenal insufficiency, and at some point they will recover. But if we stop immediately because we want to avoid Cushing's, this could be 
several months that the patients can do well, but then they have flu and then they can get adrenal crisis. So that's one thing. And the second one would be to look at all the comorbidities. So the same thing. If patients with Cushing's that have Cushing syndrome endogenous from the body versus exogenous, the risk of hypercoagulability, of diabetes, of hypertension are all very high. So we have to look at the patient as a whole, but that's sometimes even more complicated than the patient having a small tumor if they can't stop the steroids. That that seems to be the, the theme of our conversation <laughs> right here is, is, the, is the word complicated, <laughs> and I, I can see why. Let's think about the future a little bit. Where are there still gaps in knowledge, and are there any upcoming clinical trials or other advances that you think will further shape how patients with Cushing's disease or syndrome will be treated? So I'm happy to say, after I said so much that were complicated, that yes, we have some things at the end of the tunnel. We have few data, though it's not very clear, about genetic causes of Cushing's, including Cushing's disease. For adrenal Cushing's, we had a little bit more genes found for the last several years, but for pituitary tumors, we did not know. So the patients were asking what's causing these tumors and would be like, a tumor? We don't really know. So now there are some mutations that have been found, of course, because it's Cushing's, it's not easy. Mm -hmm. So some patients uh, will have the mutation, some patients wouldn't have the mutation. And if you're looking on the meta-analysis of saying if having the mutations will help prognosis, it's not clear. And I didn't use the word complicated, but it's complicated. <laughs> I hear you. So that would be one. So the more we know about who is going to have an aggressive disease, this would be the patient to actually treat differently. So mm. that's one area. The other area that we're having a lot of development is understanding what the patients are going through. So looking at quality of life and trying to improve not just numbers, or endocrinologists will have numbers, mm -hmm. but the patient as a whole. So we know that the Cushing's quality of life uh, is not going back to normal in the large majority of patients. So we are trying to address this with multi-collaborative uh, research in how we can improve not just the numbers in itself, but how the patient feels. And then we, I'm pleased to say that we finished two large clinical trials, phase three, for two adrenal steroidogenesis inhibitors. The drugs are not approved, so the clinical trials have been finished. One of them, levoketoconazole, that's an enantiomer of ketoconazole, has been published in Lancet Diabetes and Endocrinology. Of course, it would be good to know which are the factors of prognosis. So that drug worked in, if we look at all the data to compare with other study, was a little bit over 40%. With very strict numbers, it was 30%. So which are these patients that will respond? We don't know yet. Mm -hmm. But importantly, this drug improved cardiovascular markers, cholesterol, uh, especially the LDL, triglycerides, and furthermore, very important for patients, improve the testosterone and acne and hirsutism in women. So that's a good talking about what are we trying to achieve. Another adrenal serogenesis inhibitor, Ocilodrostat, that the phase two was published several years ago, and right now the phase three has uh, been presented but not published yet. This was a study run against placebo. Mm -hmm. So the results were over 80% for the drug. So higher numbers. Yes. Interestingly, the placebo group also, after the drug was stopped, saw some response. So then again, it's mm. how many, these were patients that were on treatment. 
So very interestingly, without the drug, they stayed low for a little bit. We don't know how many will go up if we would have followed more than 12 weeks, clearly yeah. more. But it goes to the point of testing these patients to see if the drug is working. Sometimes we have to follow for longer term to know exactly if it's a drug or it's the chance. The variability of the urinary free cortisol, it's 50%. Mm. So if you do just one, it's almost as flipping a coin. So we have to look more. The same improvements for oscillodros that were seen in blood pressure, uh, weight, quality of life, depression scores, so we're looking at all this. Another more selective glucocorticoid receptor, relacoriland, has been um, also developed. It's in uh, phase three trials right now. The phase two data has not been published, so we're looking forward to see. And then there are several other studies looking at several drugs that are used for cancers. As I said earlier, talking about mutations, we know more about mutations so trying to act directly at that level with the drugs that work for cancer to see if potentially might work for Cushing's for patients that fail everything else. I'm not suggesting to move all the cancer treatments to Cushing's, but there are patients that fail surgery, fail three medications, had radiation, uh, had bilateral adrenectomy, and then they develop Nelson syndrome. So the pituitary tumor grew even more. Hmm. And then we're desperate. So we have to find new treatments for these patients that are few, but they can have very aggressive disease. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. And yes, complicated, but the future seems to be showing us that there's going to be a lot more coming down the way with new options. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Flasherio. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure, always a pleasure to talk about Cushing's, and especially when we have some progress. And I'm hoping we don't have to wait many, many years. Keep in mind, Cushing's disease was diagnosed first time more than 100 years ago. And medications we have just for the last several years, and we still have, as you've seen, a lot to develop and try to find the right treatment for this patient. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening to the Endocrine News Podcast. To learn more, visit www.endocrine.org podcast. There you can find this episode and some helpful links. You can subscribe to Endocrine News Podcasts on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to leave a review on iTunes. And if there's a topic you'd like to see us cover on the podcast, let us know by emailing us at podcast at endocrine.org. Thanks again for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www dot endocrine dot org